Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, host of The Big Picture. Did you just see the latest tentpole blockbuster? Or a surprisingly fun new movie on a streaming service? Or maybe you just want to bone up on the greatest films ever made. From reviews to rankings, career retrospectives to movie drafts, and everything in between, The Big Picture is here for you. Listen to The Big Picture for free on Spotify. It's a new movie, and it like broke all kinds of records. What a, what a great achievement. Yeah, I mean... Who knows what the records actually mean? Because it's Hulu. Yeah, make them up. I'd say it's the biggest movie of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Pop Springs and E.T. Who's the top two ever? It's those two. I mean, if you you account for the quarantine, uh, I would say it's easily in that Avatar space. What made you... Do it (laughs) Avatar. What made you do it at Hulu? I mean, because obviously it worked out perfectly, but what... When did you know it was going there? It was well before the pandemic, right? Yes. The decision was made when Hulu offered the most money at Sundance. Oh. That's when I said, I want it to be at Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was at that point completely out of our hands. They, they just wanted it and we were happy to give it to them. So you went to Sundance and you shot the shit out of it. And then yeah. Hulu happens. And then a pandemic happens six weeks later. Insane. And then it, are you thinking that the movie's going to be delayed or is it just everything's on track? Uh, no, we had no idea. I mean, we originally sold it to, and still it's distributed technically by Hulu and Neon. So, and the idea was for a limited theatrical release and then to Hulu, which I was, right. of course, excited about because who wouldn't want two bites at the apple? And Neon is fantastic. You know, obviously they just did Parasite and everything. Yeah. So, um, we were stoked, but you know, in a lot of ways, it's a silver lining because streaming is what everyone sort of has access to now. And it, it worked out nicely for us that a small movie like ours, we get watched so much more because all the other big blockbusters and stuff are pulled for the time being. So it, it really actually shined a much brighter light on Palm Springs. For me, it was exciting because as we're five months into quarantine now, or month five, I've now seen every movie ever. <laughs> I've seen all of them. HBO Max, Peacock, they just yeah. released these. And I'm like, I've seen all these 1,200 movies. I'm just, I'm out. I've run out of movies. So yeah. anytime there's a new movie, I'm like, oh, cool, a new movie. Yes, agreed. I mean, certainly we're benefiting from that too. And the fact that people actually like it, I think makes them want to watch it. If, if you hear somebody say like, hey, that was actually good. You're already going to watch it. So you might as well watch it. Yeah, and the backhanded compliment scale that was actually good. It's like weirdly insulting and people are surprised. <laughs> Here's how I think people, people at this point with the stuff you've done over the years, I think even stuff that maybe missed a little bit when it came out, but like Popstar is now a cult movie and the yeah. same thing happened with Hot Rod. I don't, you've done that twice where these movies have like a slow burn. Yes. And I can't help but think that if they had gone straight to streaming, it would have been fine, you know? Right. Um, Hot has less of an excuse, but Popstar certainly came out right as the tide was turning for comedies and theaters. You know, there's kind of the year before that, since, there's been maybe two comedies that do big at the box office, and often they're like action comedies or, you yeah. know, something that's hilarious, but like is a big rom-com like Crazy Rich Asians, which is a, you know, 
huge feeling movie. It felt very eventized, that kind of stuff. So it's been tough when you're making something that's a little more niche in any way to put out a comedy in theaters recently. And I think the bigger success stories in that department have been on streaming. So I think it actually worked in our favor. Well, when Sandler did the big Netflix deal and it was like, what's this? That's strange. And then, but none of us realized at that point that Netflix has amassed this war chest of intelligence on the habits of all human beings who use their service. Yeah. And the uh, algorithm spits out Sandler and they're like, <laughs> pay this guy lots of money and and that's it. And that to me was kind of a tipping point where I'm like, oh, this is feels like something's happening here. Yeah. And also just knowing that all the Happy Madison movies were not going to be in theaters. We were like, well, that's a huge yeah, chunk that's of what I mean. studio stuff that's getting made just gone. Yeah. So it really was, yeah, uh, canary in the coal mine, so to speak. So if this, if your movie just comes out in the theater, what happens? Comes out for like two weeks. There's no pandemic. It's a two-week release, then goes right to Hulu? Well, I guess it would depend. I mean, I think it would have been a limited release, and then maybe they would have tried to grow it slowly, the yeah. way that you know most indies work. And then if there's good reviews and good build and word of mouth and stuff, then they expand on it a little bit. But I'm sure Hulu would have implemented some sort of time frame of when it had to come down to streaming, or it might've been theaters and Hulu same day. I'm not even really sure. We, we never got to have that conversation because quarantine started. Is it true that Hulu added, they wanted you to add the scene of you jerking off near the beginning? Cause they <laughs> felt like it was low on jerk off stuff or was that already in there? Uh, there was a lot of debate, you know, the, there was a, a version of the script where that scene came later. And uh, I actually, was a little more in favor of it being later because I felt like you knew the character better at that point and it seemed yeah. like situationally funnier instead of maybe funny that it was me doing it because you don't really know anything but that it's me at that point. Yeah. But, you know, it, it got laughs when we did it that way, so we ended up going with that version. Just a refer- like restructuring of the order of, of revealing information. It sets the tone. It does that. That it's this is going to be an R-rated <laughs> comedy. Like you, yes. you, you lay the smack down early because sometimes you don't know what these things. And so, yeah, and somehow I've never, I've never jerked it on camera before, even right. even all the subject matter of the Lonely Island songs. A lot of method acting. Like there's just <laughs> a lot of I'm sure you had to research how to do it, all that stuff. Yeah, first time. It was weird. Yeah, first time. <laughs> Virgin experience. It was great. Uh, yeah. Um, what made you want to do this movie? Script, great script. Yeah. Uh, and it split the difference between comedy and a little more serious stuff in a way that I felt like I could actually do it. You know, I've, I've been offered more dramatic stuff before that I liked, but I was like, I'm going to fuck this movie up by being in it because people are going to be like, I don't want him in my drama. Yeah. Um, so this one, I knew there'd be moments that really played to what people's expectations for me are. And then it sort of had a, to me, what felt like a seamless pivot into that other stuff. Um, And also just, it was just neat to read a script where it was blending a lot of different genres like rom-com, comedy, sci-fi, existential indie. And it it felt seamless to me. Like a lot of times you read stuff and it's like, I see what you're going for, but it's like a little bit of you feel the work happening. Whereas this one felt pretty smooth and and fun. So. yeah, that was kind of it. When I heard about it, we had just done a rewatchables on Groundhog Day and I mm. that movie's kind of sacred with how creative it was. And when yeah. I heard 
It's like Palm Springs. It's like Groundhog Day across to this one. I'm like, oh no, they didn't do the Groundhog. But then when you watch it, it do- it doesn't feel like it's more of an homage than you guys just you know ripping off yes. Groundhog Day. I don't feel like it was a ripoff. Is my point. I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, we were trying to stay super aware of that. Obviously, yeah, we all sort of bow at the altar of Groundhog Day. It's yeah, it's like it's an original, you know. It, it birthed a thousand different things and, you know, is also a great movie and is also hilarious and all that stuff. So when we were first talking about whether or not we wanted to do Palm Springs, we wanted to really go down a long checklist and make sure that it, for anyone who actually sits down and watches it, they'll understand that we are aware of that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think for me, the reason it felt personally like it was okay to just go for it is... There are a lot of moments in it that acknowledge that we, the filmmakers, know that you know that Groundhog Day is a movie and Edge of Tomorrow is a movie and Russian Doll is an amazing show and Happy Death Day is great, you know. And we're picking up kind of where your expectations and what you already know of those things end and leave off and saying, what if it, you know, was 100 or 200 or 1,000 years past that point, you know? Right. And, and sort of mix it up that way. And, how much further could we take it if, if we sort of picked up, grabbed the baton from the end of Groundhog Day and, and ran with it in a new direction? Yeah, and add some science to it, too. The, yeah, uh, some, some hardcore, unimpeachable science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't fact check our science. Um, did you have to spend this whole time in Palm Springs? I wish. We didn't, we didn't get to shoot in Palm Springs at all because we got the California tax rebate. This is uh, fun and interesting to talk about. But yeah, we got the we got the the tax break and it was an LA shoot, so we had to stay inside the 30 mile zone. Oh, because I was gonna ask you what you thought of Palm Springs, because it's such a weird place. I, oh, like I love it. Palm Springs. Yeah. I love it there. I was part of the reason I signed on to the movie was because I was so excited to rent a house with my family and stay in Palm Springs for a month. Yeah. Didn't happen ripped from my my hands i was we were all very very bummed not just because we wanted to actually show palm springs but like just experientially that was one of the things i was the most excited about yeah my daughter had every year she has soccer games in palm springs palm desert for some reason i had never been there until five six years ago and it it's definitely one of those areas where you go and you're like what the fuck is going on here like but in a good way (laughs) yeah like they're like what's happening it's people live here yeah. And that and there's all these stores and there's these weird downtowns and like old school ice cream shops and Yeah. It's I, I, and, yeah. I talk about it a lot, but there's a, a restaurant there called Melvin's. It's like an old school steakhouse and they have a bar attached. And it's almost like a um like a what you call it, Dresden vibe where there's like yeah. an old, old couple that plays covers and you know, there's a lot of older folks there dancing and me and Akiva and Yorma went there one time for a Lonely Island like retreat, I guess, to talk about ideas. Yeah. And, you know, drink and hang out for the weekend. And we went there and like had a blast. It, it's a great town. I really like it up there. I, I felt genuine sadness that we didn't get to do it there. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. So you mentioned people, you know, as you're making movies, trying to make choices, what people expect from you. Right. Usually with comedians, they always hit this point. You look at like, you can go look at the IMDb's of any of like the great comedians. And they always had that one run where somebody said, hey, you should 
you should be in a drama, man. You should. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they have like those one or two like serious movies in there where it's right. just kind of, they have to mix it up and break out of, you know, the habit of basically being themselves in these different movies. <laughs> did you, did you feel, pre- I mean, you, you didn't do that with this movie, but do you think about that stuff at all? I know that it's a thing because I watch so much comedy and I follow other comedians so much because it's just what I love. So yeah. I'm, I'm aware of the phenomenon and I know that I even have peers that have done it successfully. And for me, it's like, it would just be if I got offered the right thing, you know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not ever like actively pursuing something ever in my career. Like you don't make the bash brothers special if that's what you're doing, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's whatever idea pops up or whatever <laughs> offer comes through that you're like, okay. Yeah, good. Like, I didn't want to make a sitcom. And then Mike Sher and Dan Gore asked me about Brooklyn. And I was like, fuck, okay. Like, I want to work with yeah. those guys. So I did it. And then outside of that, it's really just like whatever comes across my desk or whatever idea me, Keith, and Yorm are talking about, really. So you're still in close contact with those guys? Oh, yeah, every day. What's, is there stuff brewing? Is stuff coming? <laughs> stuff in the mix? There's nothing active that the three of us are creating together. We all have stuff being developed and our company is, is developing a ton of stuff now, which is great. Um, it's hard. You know, I, I wish I could say like, we're working on an album or something, but that stuff really does a lot better when we're all in the room together. And that clearly hasn't been possible. So everybody stayed tight. Cause usually that can go one of two ways after a few years, right? Yeah. That's not going to be us. Yeah. But we're yeah we just we feel good with each other it's it's kind of just the way we navigate everything just together was there a yoko ono type situation at any point somebody's girlfriend so. just starts coming in creative i was just reading about I was reading something about the beatles recently and everybody knows the yoko ono story but actually like the whole details of just lennon's like hey she's just gonna be here from now on as we do everything and those guys are like wait what <laughs> you know, it's just a four other like, yeah, she's just gonna be in, she's gonna help us with stuff. And they're like, What like every day? And and then like the the wheels really did come off like that. But yeah, I think when you're so tight when you're working together, it's like any sort of foreign activity to that threesome or that dynamic can totally yeah. upend it. I think I think the one way in which the Lonely Island is different from the Beatles, the sole way. The only is, way. Yeah, is that we were like buddies before we ever decided to work together yeah and it was more like hey we're friends already and we all want to do the same thing should we now decide also to start working together whereas my understanding with um the fab four the beatles i called them the fab four is uh (laughs) is that they were all like let's let's put together a band who plays and it sort of came together that way so then once they achieved musical success they were probably a little less beholden to one another in terms of their friendships. Right. I think that's that's the one difference. That's the only way. Yeah. That's the only difference. (laughs) Do you guys talk at all about how this is the most humorless year we've probably ever had? And how do you even find comedy and pursue comedy when everybody is as serious as probably they've ever been in our lifetime? Not really because not to sound like too lofty, but it, it's like, it doesn't come up because we're all preoccupied with what's going on. Yeah. So it doesn't ever, it's never like, fuck, when is the 
country going to get it right on racism and COVID going to end so we can keep doing dick jokes. It's more yeah, just right. like, holy shit, this is like a heavy year. Like, yeah, where, and where does comedy even fit in? It, it just doesn't feel like it does in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the best quote-unquote comedy right now is just not as actively goofy. It's just talking about what's going on. You know, you have like Seth's show and John Oliver's show and stuff like that. And, you know, it's been like that before and it'll be like that again. Um, I, I think there's always room for comedy. And I think at the end of these days, which can be really tough sometimes, we're certainly watching funny things to sort of give ourselves relief and catharsis. Mm-hmm. So there's always a space for it. It's, it's more that it's harder to be funny specifically about current events. And if that's your bread and butter, I think it's a little more serious right now. That's just how it is. Yeah, it almost seems like a complete stay away. You guys, 15 years since uh, the first SNL music video, right? Wasn't that 06? Might have been 05. Oh, was it earlier than that? 05? So yeah, 05. That's what, yeah, I guess that's yeah. 15 years. I can't add. Yeah, 05. Yeah. And then YouTube happens 06 and everything kind of goes. Yeah. I mean, as far as I understand it, YouTube really happened the day after Lazy Sunday aired. <laughs> it was certainly, if they were doing a documentary about YouTube, I think that would be in the yeah. first 20 minutes, right? Because it was the first one that got shared in a really significant way. That I mean, people have said that to us and we like to jokingly take credit, but I'm sure there's some truth to it. I just wouldn't know like any of the numbers on it. But I mean, it was the first time I had ever heard of it was people texting and emailing us saying, I just saw your your video from the show last night on a thing called YouTube. Right. Like, oh, cool. I remember I wrote a piece for ESPN. It's got to be like spring 06, somewhere in there, where it was like, this new thing, YouTube. Yeah. Here are 33 things I found on YouTube. And I wrote like a paragraph <laughs> about each thing. But it had been, been that thing I had been kind of waiting for my whole life. All these moments you have that you loved over the course of your life, and then they're just gone. These yes. things that I remember when I was a kid, like, you know, the Motown 25th anniversary show yes. or 40, whatever that was, the Michael Jackson moonwalk or yeah. some wrestling moment. You're just like, I kind of remember those things, but they're now gone. I don't know where they went. And then all of a sudden they're on YouTube. It is wild that almost anything, you just remember it and go like, oh, I want to watch it now. And it's there. Well, Peacock. <laughs> have you been on Peacock? No. <laughs> so they have an SNL channel. Is it? And it's just SNL sketches one after the other, I guess just and they, infinite, it, infinitely. Like on shuffle? So, yeah. So you could see Lazy Sunday and then you could see some sketch from like six months ago. And then some sketch from like, I don't know, 2010. And it just kind of never ends. And then they'll have a couple commercials in there. Yeah, it's like it's like an uh, unshuffle SNL sketch channel. Interesting. Very strange. They also have like, they have, I didn't, Pluto has the same thing where it's like these channels of content that you could get anyway, but it's on a channel. So somehow it feels like watching TV. I don't totally understand it, but it's kind of cool. It's like the video equivalent of like... Um like a comedy channel on like satellite radio or something. Totally. One bit from a Mulaney album and then one from like an old, you know, Lenny Bruce thing or something. Lawrence tried like 10 different ways to take advantage of that old SNL IP and he's never really settled on. (laughs) Cause remember that there was one point where it was at Yahoo and it was a Yodi Yahoo, you get everything. 
And then yes. it was like, now you got to go to NBC and you get everything. And then all of a sudden, then it was on Comedy Central and VH1 again. And it just kind of travels around. And then then they show like the ones from the 70s and 80s, they show in primetime on NBC, which I thought on Saturdays. Oh, they'll just oh show yeah, it like, yeah. They've been doing old ones like repeats. Yeah. And then I'm like, who's the audience for this? Because it's like me and eight other people, like this Buck Henry SNL from 1978. Right. Well, I think there was like a dead spot in the schedule right before the new SNLs were airing. So they were right. Why not? Yeah. It's, but at no point have they ever just been like, here's everything. Here's in this one spot. It's all searchable and you get everything. Maybe that's what Peacock will eventually have. I do wonder if it'll ever be possible because I know that there's like, especially with the musical guests and licensing all the songs, that there's a, it's almost impossible to clear it all. Yeah. Like we even have just like one-off sketches and stuff that you can never see because they had a song in it that we couldn't clear. Well, you have, well, when you did the OC parody. Uh-huh. And what was the name of that song though? What You Say? Hide and Seek. Yeah, yeah. Image and Heap. So if you didn't clear that one, that sketch is just gone forever. I do think it's hard to find. Yeah. Um, and we did one too with Paul Rudd called Stumbling that was essentially just nine to five. But it was if the verse part just never ended, right? Um, and you, I don't, I can't find that one anywhere. And uh, we had a Aphex Twin sample in "I Ran So Far," which was the Aquadina job one we did. And I, he was cool with it, but I think they wouldn't make the deal. NBC wouldn't to clear the sample for like in perpetuity. So I think that one's hard to find. That's why I like those Saturday Night Primetime ones because they still have the rights to show the musical acts. Yes. So, which is killer to see like yeah. an old Talking Heads performance. Oh from like my god, eighties or something. Yeah, they had one. I think they showed Nirvana. The one I think they showed the Barkley one with the yeah. when Barkley was the host with Nirvana as the musical act when they were like at the peak of their all time powers. But yes, yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad that uh, all of those performances can't be somewhere. Yeah, because you, know? you feel like. There's a, a server at SNL that you can access a lot of the old library, but obviously that's private. Because <laughs> one of the things I love about, yeah, one of the things I love about the music is that they're, a lot of times they're catching the band at the greatest moment of their career. Yeah. Right? It's like they just have this awesome album coming out and they have enough momentum that they can actually be on SNL. Yeah. So it's either that, like, they're taking off like a rocket ship moment or it's, this is the one time this ever happened for them moment. <laughs> but then yeah. when they come back the second time, that's when, you know, they're oh, legit. This is, yeah. This is a real, yeah. You know, usually like, people's second performance is better. Cause that would guess. Yeah. I think going on SNL for the first time and knowing it's truly live without a net is probably pretty terrifying as a performer. I wonder, do you think with, with, there's this whole reckoning now with, you know, workplace and being more, being, uh, being nicer to your, the people that work for you and what kind of <laughs> positions you put them in. And yet SNL is a place where you're encouraged to stay up until six in the morning writing sketches. At what point does everybody look at that and go, wait a second, what are we doing here? Or do you think that's just the way the show has to be? I don't think people there generally think they're being mistreated. It's if you work there, you know that the show's not going to happen if you don't do it. And that specific way. Yeah, because it's, an, it's, it's not intentionally, but it is inherently designed to be bir- like almost impossible. 
You know, right. like what you're attempting to do in that amount of time is really something from a bygone era, especially now that they're doing so much pre-tape, which a lot of people blame us for. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, you definitely leave affected and worn out and burnt out and often, you know, psychologically damaged, but you also know, like, if you want the show to be good and, and air in a competent way, like everyone's got to just be all hands on deck the whole time. Well, also I always thought part of it was people have to peak at 1130 and 12 o'clock and 1230 at night. Right. Yes. Yeah. It is crazy to get your adrenaline up right before the show at that hour. Yeah. So almost like your whole sleep cycle thing has to be different. Like it's funny to talk about NBA, to talk to NBA players about this where you know, they play and they eat dinner after and they're eating at like 1130, right. 11 midnight. Yeah. And they go to bed at like four or five o'clock. And I remember talking to one guy and he was, he was talking about how people give them shit. Cause it was like, they were at a club at four 30 in the morning. It's like, we're like vampires. We're, we're trained to perform and peak. Yeah. You know, sometimes it'll be 1030 at night and it'll be the fourth quarter of a game. Like we, it can't be like, that's can't be bedtime. That's yes. when we have to be at the peak of our powers. And you can't so, eat a huge meal before you play an NBA game. So. No, <laughs> or you eat at like three o'clock and then you've just worked out for three hours and then you're hungry after. That's actually almost exactly just a little earlier in the day, but it's, it's the same cycle as an SNL on a Saturday. Yeah. You know, you have like a light meal in the like early evening, late afternoon and for me anyway, I wouldn't eat until the after party, which is what, one thirty, two in the morning by the time you yeah. get there. Right. You're having like a full on steak. <laughs> right. It's like 2 a.m. and you're drinking like Red Bull and vodka and eating steak. <laughs> yeah, it's that ideal. What have been your quarantine uh, deep dives? What have you gotten into? Um, well, I never watched Mad Men and we watched it. My wife and I watched the whole thing. Fantastic. Yeah, turns out good show. <laughs> and it's weird because I've been like friendly with Ham for a long time and it's never come up. But I now I'm like waffling on sh- like, should I text him to be like, hey man, I checked out the show. <laughs> 10 years later, and like, you know, he knows it's one of the best shows of all time. So. Well, you could do the whole thing. Like I never saw, cause I was, you know, we we're grinding on SNL. Right. I just felt two years behind and I would always been meaning to watch it. Yeah. I think he would understand. I think I've been off of SNL for like seven or eight years though. But it was, it came out in 06 <laughs> though, right? It was when you were on. So yes, you'd be like, yeah, true, you know, true. then it, it's a lot of seasons just was never the right time. I also did uh, like a Mad Men sketch when I hosted the Emmys. Like I did a whole pre-tape <laughs> bit of it where I like the world, you know, give the world yeah. a joke or whatever with me. And I was him meditating on the bluff and Big Sur and everything. So like, it's really exposing. Like I was right. fully acting like I knew the show publicly. Well, <laughs> it's an easy one to explain in two sentences to somebody who hasn't seen it. Also, he'll be like, cool, yeah, I, I won an Emmy. I don't care if you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was it. Great. Mad Men, what else? Mad Men, uh, we watched The Great on Hulu. Enjoyed that. Um, watched 
What else have we even been in? We watched a lot. Watched uh, Watchmen a while back. That's fantastic. Um, been watching some movies, some documentaries. We watched this documentary called Crip Camp that was incredible. Uh, Crip Camp? Yeah, it was at Sundance. It's about like a camp on the East Coast in the 60s, I think, for kids with disabilities. And then it like tracks their stories as they grow up like, to get older. And a lot of them go into like activism in, involving mm. like the rights of people with disabilities in the U.S. And a lot of it goes through Berkeley, California, which is where I grew up, which was really cool. But it's just incredible and inspiring. And you like really get to know a lot of the people in it over the course of the, the movie. It was, it was great. Well, if this thing keeps going, you might have to start finally getting into horror movies. I'm too scared. This could be the last frontier for you. I am too scared. I still haven't even watched Us. I'm too scared to watch it. Really? And that wasn't even like technically a horror movie. It was more like a weird thriller. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. to name not to name drop, but I know Jordan. And I told yeah. him I'm too scared to watch Get Out. And he was like, you can watch Get Out. It's not that scary. And I True. watched it and it wasn't too scary. So then when Us was coming out, I was like, is it too scary? And he was like, yeah, it's probably too scary for you. <laughs> it has a couple scary ones. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. I enjoy those in the moment when I'm watching them, but then I can't get them out of my head. And I have like bad dreams and shit and it's just not worth it. So like there's something wrong with the house, that genre of movie, you're out. Oh, no way. Yeah. Something's in the attic. That shouldn't have been there. Oh yeah. Home intruder stuff. I really can't fuck with. Yeah. Those are tough too. I, and torture stuff. I can't do either. Like I watched the trailer for Midsummer, and I was like, no, <laughs> no way. <laughs> I got to say that movie is like, especially disturbing. The shot at the end of the trailer where she's like looking in the barn and you don't even see it. You just hear all the like moaning. I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. What, uh, are you doing any more comedy stuff along the lines of the tennis one you did for HBO? Uh, no, not, nothing planned. You know, That's the, last, it? the last sports related thing was Bash Brothers. Right. Which was very fun. Have I talked to you since that came out? No. What was the response? Well, the people who found it liked it. You know, it was it was a very uh, kind of a niche crowd that I think we were appealing to there. Um, but the coolest part about it was we went on tour for the first time, like right after it came out. And Canseco reached out and he like came and came out on stage with us at a couple shows and like best around. Really? Yeah. It was what, was what was he like? Cause I've always heard, I mean, the consensus is he's kind of a dick, but then other people would be like, no, no, he's great. He was super nice to us. And we yeah. had just like put out a thing about him without asking. And he was like, it's great. I love it. Uh, Interesting. Was like really kind of, upbeat and go like goofed around with us a lot and spoke very openly about everything, you know, that he had been through. And, uh, you know, for us, it was like really cool to meet him. We grew up in the Bay. Like he was truly on our hero list. Bash Brothers yeah. was like fucking it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. We like went out and did some of the songs and did like kind of pulled like an SNL update, you know, where he like came out behind us with a bat. Mm. <laughs> like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, the crowds were just so stoked that he was really there. Cause who the fuck's expecting that? So it was pretty funny. 
I think that was the last time I saw you. You were about to do that tour and you were excited about it. How many cities did you do? Um, I think 20 something. Wow. Yeah, it was great. We were not ready for how into it people were. How, how big were the crowds? Like what kind of stadiums were you playing? It was like anywhere from 3,000 to 8,000. Damn. For our solo shows. And then we did a couple festivals and those were like uh, 15 or 16,000, one of them. And then Bonnaroo, we did like the 1230 AM slot. And it was apparently like 30 something thousand people. Oh my God. All like singing along to I'm on a boat, you know, (laughs) it was so tight. We're just like, what is happening? Could you see why, um, why so many famous musicians like lose their minds when they have that happening to them night after night after night? It's hard to, it's hard to chase that rush. Yeah. Being like, and they're all looking at us. Right. (laughs) But I don't know. I remember so many concert experiences and it's like, it's partly about the band, but it's really about the experience and like whatever you're, you know, taking that night and like your own personal connection with the songs. And it's fun to be like, to turn that around and be on the stage for it. But I also am not like trying to act like, I don't, it's not the same as like being in a real band is all. I was listening to uh, Jim Miller did an almost famous podcast about the whole making of that movie. So Mm -hmm. it's like five episodes and like Billy Crudup had to learn how to play the guitar and it was like a whole, they had them in rock star camp, but then they actually filmed the songs that they play in the movies. So they're in front of like a whole stadium of people. Yeah. And he was just saying like, I kind of get it now. I get why these, <laughs> these stars, they go out there and they're like these gods to these people, the connection they have and the people are losing their minds and they're just doing that night after night. And how can you be normal after that? I was like, yeah. pretty good point, Billy Crudup. yeah uh it's a trip it's definitely a surreal feeling to be up there especially for us like having known each other since junior high and high school yeah to be like up there especially like the bonnaroo one and and the Summerfest one we did in milwaukee was like you're on stage look over at each other and it's like it's still the three of us dummies you know yeah and to be like and we're playing like songs from multiple records we've made together and it's we're still going like what a fucking dream. It's great. It's crazy. What song was, what song turned out to be like your meal ticket song in concert? concert. Yeah. The one that like made people seemingly the craziest. I think I'm on a boat. I was going to guess that that was the one that, that and Jack Sparrow also went off. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, But you know, a lot of them, frankly, it was pretty, pretty fucking fun. Like threw it on the ground, played pretty big and lazy Sunday played good. And we did a little medley of the songs with Timberlake where we had puppets for him and and Lady Gaga and stuff. Um, And a lot of it just had sex was a big one. I remember um, I was at a Super Bowl, like Super Bowl weekend in Miami, I think like 2010. And it was that Saturday and they, you know, they have all those parties and there was, I was actually on a boat. I was on this huge boat and they're having this (laughs) huge party and I'm on a boat came on and the whole 
the whole boat started singing it. And we were like, what the fuck is going on? Is this, is this song? All these people, they were like, lose their minds singing like every word. I, all of us were like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, like, because I, I never have any feel for how big those songs are unless there's moments like that. You know, if you're at a club or whatever and it's yeah. like, oh shit, everyone knows the lyrics to this. That song actually, I think, is our best-selling song. Like, people actually got it. I think it's like two or three times platinum, which is just... Wow. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is it's just musically one of our best ones. Like, Agree. And having T-Pain on it all throughout. Like, the beat is just big business, and then T-Pain has just killed it. Yeah. So, like, you can throw it on, and if you hadn't seen the video and weren't paying attention, it does bump. Like, I think it is musically satisfying in that way and it goes pretty hard um but also i think a lot of people put it on when they're on boats <laughs> which it's, is so fucking funny i mean uh, yeah i always had i always thought people should do this for um sports songs where like songs specifically designed for like an nba team to play yeah when the opening lineup's about to be introduced, like somebody could really craft a song that's like, now it's time for our starters. And that's like literally right. the chorus. And it would just play for 30 years, like location based, good songs. Yes. That seems like there's a whole real estate for that. We did a really cynical one in that vein called we are a crowd. And we were, <laughs> we were hoping that it would like ironically become real in the same way where it's it didn't just happen. Like, we are a crowd and we are loud. <laughs> We're cheering for a sport at our favorite event or something. And I think it was too, too on the nose and it kind of, yeah. but we had that exact thought. I think somebody's going to nail it one of these days. It's sitting there. I mean, I heard, I'll say this. I heard that some of the Bash Brothers songs, not to keep coming back to it, but some of the Bash Brothers songs were getting played at the Coliseum. Really? In Oakland. Yeah. Like for a while, quite a bit. And like we have buddies that have season tickets and shit. And they were like, dude, Bash Brothers is playing. It's this guy's walk-up music. And like when someone hit a home run, they played less Bash and stuff like that. It was like, well, you can't top that. Were you upset when the Warriors moved to San Francisco or did you not care? I was upset. I'm not going to front. I still support them. They're still my team. But, you know, I'm East Bay. Um, so I know what it means to everyone in the East Bay that we had a team there, you know. And then the Raiders are gone. Yeah. That for me is easier to swallow because when I was a kid, they were in LA and then they came back. They're kind of like the dad who leaves and then comes back six years <laughs> later and he's living with mom again. And now he's gone again. And you just kind of have your guard up. Yeah. Warriors is tougher because it's not just the recent years of them being insanely great. It was also the like, you know, run TMC years and the Spreewell oh, yeah. Weber years and, you know, Rick Barry and all that stuff. So, there's a lot of, like, I really, truly grew up watching the dubs and loving them. So it, it was definitely bittersweet. But they're still my team. I'm still real excited for next season. The stadium's amazing. I haven't been. Built. I heard yeah. it was just bonkers. It's pretty cool. They're probably yeah. going to have a top three draft pick. They basically threw away one season with <laughs> some injuries. Who do you think it they should ended take? Up, it ended up not even being a full season. They got, I think they're going to trade the pick. I think so too. I think they'll they'll trade the pick to regroup and either package it with a couple other players or just say fuck it and 
just try to basically do what they did when they got Durant and they just kind of front load it with five yeah. good players for three years. I'm seeing a lot of people talking about like, they're going to go after Giannis. And I'm like, they can't get him. What? I don't understand I why everyone thinks that's. Well, the, the other thing is the cap's going to go down. Right. Cause God only knows like what kind of season we're going to have next year and whether there's going to be fans, whatever it is, it's not yeah. going to be the same kind of revenue. So I don't even know how Giannis would jump teams. Cause he's not, not going to. Like Curry makes over 40 a year. Clay makes like over 20. Like they're not going to have the money anyway. Like the Durant thing was so fluky. It was like the once in a lifetime, the cap jumps right as this generational guy becomes available and says, fuck it, I'll play with these guys. Like that's never happening again. No, for sure. And I think, I think people will eventually realize that. How do you feel about Durant these days? It's like a hired gun. It's kind of passed, (laughs) passed through your life for three years. Not that he cares what I think, but you know, I, I, he seems like someone that you really just want to find peace. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. Everyone wants to love him so bad. And I think he, he's just a sensitive dude. Like I get it. He hears people talking shit about his decisions and you know, the, the way that the fans in OKC treated him was truly garbage. Um, And like, he poured his heart into that franchise. I would be pretty pissed off. Um, but I look, it's hard for me to truly speak on it because I'm a Warriors fan. So I, I love him. You know, he came in and fucking destroyed. It was like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And especially after what went down in the finals the previous year with like Draymond getting suspended and all that stuff. It was like some Game of Thrones shit. I like wanted to see complete domination on the side of the Warriors from, from that point forward, basically I didn't care if it was fair or not. I wanted that, that revenge and the glory and all that as a fan. So yeah, my short answer is I love him. And obviously he's one of the best players of all time. So he's going to be fun to watch no matter where he is. The game, that game was on when Draymond punched LeBron in the nuts. Uh huh. It was on recently. Pretty innocuous. I got to say it was a borderline. Did he punch him in the nuts? It's he kind of flicked him like you would do to somebody in college. Yeah, like just like a it was, and it was unclear how intentional it was over him, very much on purpose. So LeBron definitely goaded him into it. Yeah, he fell for it, but it's really weird that that decided the title because I just don't think they would have lost Game Five, Game Four. They definitively beat them in Cleveland and laid the smack down, and then the series was getting Game Five and. Just a weird one. It it just it doesn't is. add up to what the penalty was, you know. I completely agree. The thing that you can knock Draymond for is all the the stuff that came before it. All know? the like, tacticals that led to that being the 16th technical. I get it. He talks about it the same way. Like, but there yeah. were times throughout that playoffs where, as a fan, you're just like, "No, it, you're winning." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't need to do it. But you know, that's his mo. He plays with his heart on his sleeve. Um, Some of those guys can't help themselves because like what you just said, they play with so much emotion. They literally can't harness it correctly. And they don't, they're almost like they're blacked out. Like they don't realize what they're doing until it's too late. Who else is like that? Garnett was. I mean, Rasheed Wallace was the ultimate example. He just couldn't. Rasheed Wallace had 41 technicals in one season. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the all time record by 20. He just, there's certain guys that just, they can't rein it in, you know? For me, me, Rashid Wallace is the most, like the 
thing I always think of him the most is that he was on an E40 diss track. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what year was that? I'm, I want to. I want to say I was in college, so it was like '97 or '98. You can get there's this uh, Amazon has this thing called MTV Hits, uh-huh. and it's like basically the entire MTV library for like seven bucks a month. Oh. And they have a lot of the old cribs, uh-huh. and they have the Rashid Wallace cribs from like '0304. You could just Rashid Wallace takes you through. His entire gigantic house in Oregon. He shows you his cars. It's pretty great. Does he get a technical in it? <laughs> no, he probably shoves over a cameraman at one point. <laughs> Crips is one of those shows that I'm not entirely sure why it ever went away. I don't know if social media killed it or what, but I was always into seeing people's houses. I feel like maybe people do it on their own now on their Instagram. Yeah, it's like Instagram Live has replaced yeah. Cribs for some reason. but That to me I'm, is a nightmare. Being like, look at my house. This is where I Oh live. my God. <laughs> I never, never understood it. I remember watching one where it was Moby and he just had like this two bedroom studio in New York and it was over in like seven minutes. It's like, here's, <laughs> here's my office. I've got one bathroom. That's uh, hilarious. It just plowed through. But yeah, there's been some great ones. Uh, all right. So you're, you're laying low now, just coasting on the success of your massive Hulu movie. I mean, I'm doing... A podcast? That's not like Yeah. What are you going to do the rest of the summer? Mostly just hang out with my daughter. How old is the daughter now? Three. Oh, man. Yeah. Some good times ahead. You have a daughter. How old is your daughter playing soccer in Palm Springs? My daughter's 15 now. Yeah. So is she on like a traveling club team if you go that far? Yeah, but they're not traveling anywhere because there's no, there's no soccer. But yeah, right, we right. would, we, the, we were going all around California. But yeah, I think. With the daughters, age four, my favorite years were four, six, and ten. All right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna fight, file that one away. Okay, six. Kimmel's daughter just turned six, and I was like, oh man, you start talking about it, like, oh man, six. What a great year that was. <laughs> They're like these little human beings. Plus, the girls are much smarter than the boys. The boys yeah. are just like dumbasses. Yeah, the girls are like. They know, kind of know what's going on, you know, like they're very perceptive. I feel like she's pretty much on the same level as me now at three. <laughs> right, <laughs> Yeah, they really do. And boys, until they're seven, they're just like a lump of, a lump of coal. Like, it, like they're just, just shitty look in their face. Yeah, man, yeah. bumping into stuff and just no, no, no uh, regard for their own safety in any yeah. capacity. Just peeing on stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Girls God. are like, what's going on? They're like navigating anything. That's a good yeah, episode. It is. It's been great. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That and you know, developing stuff, but half of that goes nowhere. So still fun. Take some Zoom meetings. So many goddamn Zooms. Everyone in every field must be ready to pull their hair out on these Zooms. It does feel like people got better at Zoom over the last four months, though. Because that first First month was super choppy and people interrupting yeah. each other. But now it's like almost everybody's doing a podcast all day, every day. Would you like to get into your audio settings? We <laughs> move stuff around. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about this? You go audio settings uh, next to the next to the microphone icon. Then you go yeah. in the bottom right corner, click advanced. And there you can suppress persistent background noise. You can suppress intermittent background noise. If you want, you could throw on some echo cancellation. That's just the way I roll. <laughs> Do you do the fake backgrounds behind you? You know, in the beginning I did, and at a certain point I just stopped. 
but I have a, cu- I have a couple of people that have stayed committed to it in my life. And how does it make you feel? I appreciate that in month five, people are still <laughs> buying into the gimmick. I feel like when I do like big fun zooms with friends, the game is putting up the most embarrassing photo of your friend behind you that you can. <laughs> and that to me, that, that yields great, great joy. The, the, you know, this is what I'm into right now. Version I think is a little less because it's all pixelated and their hair, yeah. their hair disappears into it. I do feel like I'm more in touch with people in my life now than I was before the pandemic. Like uh, yeah. I had a Zoom with all my friends from college, and it, it was like we hadn't all seen each other, you know, like that in a long time. You know, yeah. it's like why don't we do this more often? It was fun. How's everybody doing? Everybody's great. Yeah, I mean, my group's getting old though, you know. I hit the big five zero, so you start like, right. you know, a guy who was on our hall. He died this year. So we're like talking about that, and yeah, that's um, wild. Yeah, you start. I don't know. You hit fifteen, you start thinking things differently. Just got it depressing. Is, that's a heavy one. No, yeah, we're all in our early forties, and everyone's got kids now. So it's like, wow, this is not how it was. <laughs> well, like the real- thing with the early forties is athletically, that's the last stand. If you ever had any sort of athletic anything left in you that any sort of itch you needed to scratch, like this yeah. is the time. If you're ever like, oh, I got to pick up rugby, like you got about a year. Yes. I, I actually, I grew up playing soccer and loved it. And I started playing soccer again the last couple of years and I was just getting it going again. And then, mm. you know, now we can't leave our houses. So I'm, I'm definitely worried about my health. Video games? Not really. I've got the reissue old uh, NES that you can like play Tecmo Bowl and like. Oh yeah. I burned through that in one day. (laughs) That's kind of been it. Every like five years, I need to beat Tecmo Bowl again, and then I play. Which one? The '89 or the '90? The original, not the super. With the four plays. With the four plays, and you're either Bo Jackson or Walter Payton, and you can beat anybody. I have a. I wrote a whole column in '03 about video Bo Jackson and just that whole era in the four plays and how it was like chess <laughs> trying to figure out what the other guy was doing and <laughs> the mind games. And then Bo Jackson yeah. would just break whatever the defense was and they made him too good. You it had, pretty funny. Yeah. It had to be that they guess your exact play or else you're, you can break free. Right. Yeah. But Bo, if you were playing with somebody against somebody who was really good and they had Bo and they would just do the run backwards thing and then run forward yes. and all kinds of ways. Like a lot of like fights and near fights because of Bo Jackson, like in real life, <laughs> people like, come on, man, fuck you. That and then there's the one spot in double dribble where you can always hit a three. Right. Which was. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird era. Every game still, had a glitch. Yeah. If you got good at defense and double dribble, you could have a run where you like, steal it like 15 times in a row and hit the exact same three and be up like 50 in two minutes. I can't believe like double dribble compared to the game now. Like my son plays 2K and the amount of detail into those dudes. I know. Where like he got, he was all excited because, you know, I'm friends with Jalen because we work together. We've known Mm -hmm. each other a while. And Jalen had a Galaxy Opal card. That's like the top card. It basically gives you superpowers. Yeah, yeah. So he's playing with the Jalen card and it's kind of like watching Jalen, but they really have down like how his body moved and, and kind of the vibe. I was like, this is fucking amazing. Like, do they do that based on footage or they get players to come in and do like pads and no, not, not, yeah, they do the mocap. 
I think, but, really? that, but it can't be for someone like Jalen because he's retired. So they must right. have figured out some way to crack the science of it. But yeah, they they usually have the guys, they fly them to wherever they make the game. They put them in a suit with all this stuff. Because I did a thing for ESPN on it in 07 where I wore the suit. And then they made like a video <laughs> game character out of it. They're not not high jumping ability for my guy. But so wait, they, did they ever put you in as like an Easter egg character? I think they did. Yeah. Oh, that rules. I think I was just like a stretch four. <laughs> Uh, but you wear these suits they're almost like scuba diving suits and they put all these sensors all over it and then you just kind of play basketball and then the sensors capture how you move and then it translates it and it goes so it's pretty cool how did you feel about how they made your body look I told them to well first of all I don't think I ate for like a week before because I wanted (laughs) my guy to be thinner yeah but yeah I was doing it with Paul Pierce and he was wearing it wearing the suit too but he was like six seven and a half or whatever. So he looked yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, different, and different types. We're all kind of moving around and he's practicing like lefty layups, righty layups, follow his shots. And he's just going through his whole arsenal for like six hours. And you were like free throw. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, put back jump hook. Yeah. Let me, let me do like two of those. Then uh, quarter three. How, how bad it would be if I did like one of the, um, like the celebrity all-star game. Because there's like guys that and and girls that do that that can really ball. The move for you is just go three point line to three point line, and kind of bide your time. Or coach, maybe. That's what I did. So they wanted me to play, and when I was doing countdown, and but Jalen, I ended up coaching because he didn't yeah. want to play. That's smart. And coaching was the move. Although I did Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg did coup to Tommy in the fourth quarter. He just put himself in. Yeah. It's like, coach, I'm going back in. I'm like, okay, Snoop Dogg. He's genuinely great at basketball, right? He's shocking. Yeah. Because he he was like uh, kind of an amazing offensive rebounder. Uh-huh. Like it, was, it was a little like mid-90s Rodman-ish. Oh. And then uh, he just had a really nice flow to his game. Yeah. Michael B. Jordan was really good, too. Yeah, I can see that. He had a nice one. He should do a sports movie at some point. I feel like if you're that good, if you're a good actor and you're that good at basketball, it's like you're kind of wasting it if you don't do the sports movie. Well, he did Creed. No, I'm saying the bat, like the basketball. He should do basketball straight up. So he's got to do something where he's like yeah. an aging, aging athlete or something. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I you're mean, I've for- done tons: cycling, tennis. Right. <laughs> you're, I was going to say you're due for some sort of basketball. I would love to do a soccer one because that's the only sport I'm actually good at. The soccer ones, we've basically victory. Yeah. It's still the best soccer extended scene ever in a soccer movie. And then other than that, it gets really dicey. It's it's hard to shoot because the field's so massive and the stadiums are so huge. Well, like Bend It Uh Like Beckham, the girl wasn't. They did, except she wasn't good at soccer and they had to edit around her the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Well, that's most. There's a lot of like just close-ups. I want somebody. If you're gonna make a soccer movie, make build it around somebody who's actually really good at soccer. They should have got Beckham. Literally, (laughs) put put a wig on him. He just could have gone out there. The title would have made way more sense. Totally, he does get a cameo in that movie, though. Oh, he does. Yeah, this is. You'll probably be the only person on the planet who appreciates it. One of my passions with watching dumb shit on cable is when they have 
it's like a lifetime movie or something and there's a soccer scene or a basketball scene and it's just a complete abomination because clearly <laughs> oh, yeah. nobody on the set knows what's going on. Dude, football is actually usually the worst. Yeah. There's like a bad football scene. Oh yeah. And you're like, oh God, this is like a bunch of background actors that are like forced into pads. Well, soccer's, like- soccer's <laughs> funny because I think they think soccer is easy because it's like, oh yeah, we'll just get a goal. And well, but then when they try to execute it, it's some of the worst shit you've ever seen in your life. And they'll do right. it. I remember there was a commercial with soccer where it was the same thing where it's like, this girl's on a breakaway, but she can like barely run. And they, yeah. you know, like they just can't get the hang of it. Yeah. I like a soccer movie for you. You know, who was the best on camera soccer actor was, uh, Andrew Shue on. Oh yeah. It was Melrose place, right? Yeah. He played, he was like the captain at Dartmouth. He was, didn't he play MLS or something? He was like semi-professional maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I was always jealous of that because I was like, Hey, you got to play soccer on camera. He, well, he wore his Dartmouth jersey a lot on that on show. The show. Yeah, he be- okay. he would break it out, which never really made sense with the character. But yeah, he he uh, yeah. he was definitely flaunting it. Save the wardrobe department a buck. Totally. Um, <laughs> this was a pleasure. It was good to see you. You too, buddy. Congrats on your movie. I was really excited. You're one of the good guys, so I was excited. Uh, I like I like seeing um, I like seeing massive success for you. Thank you. I'm sure I'm it will lead sure, to. Yeah. Palm Springs too for a, a ridiculous paycheck that you won't be able to turn down. Uh, if they offer that, yeah, screw it. Who cares about artistic integrity? Yeah, whatever. Nothing's gonna get made ever again. It doesn't matter. It'll be it'll be a Zoom movie. <laughs> the, the same Zoom meeting happening over and over again in Palm Springs. I have to get a mocap set up in my house because I think that's gonna be the only thing made. It could from be now it. On. Yeah, yeah, think about that. Invest in it. All right, good seeing you. Thanks, Andy. You too. Talk soon. 